you can open your Bibles, church, to the book of Isaiah. Book of Isaiah. So uh, if you've been following along in our reading guide, or uh, if you haven't, uh, that is okay. But uh, we are entering a time now where for the next two to three months, we are going to be deep in the prophets as we are going to be moving through each prophet now uh, in uh, chronological order. And as we entered this time and as I was looking forward to um, and, and looking at all that we've read up to this point, uh, what we see here as we enter the time of all these prophets and their different messages and the, the messages that the Lord delivers through them to the people, uh, this is a, a pivotal point in the life of Israel. But in the larger scope of things, this is a pivotal point in redemption history. As we've seen time and again, this repetitious rebellion of God's people, and it's really reaching its boiling point here in the age of the prophets. And in the messages of the prophets, we see God's anger and his judgment coming against the sin, but also a revealing of what his plan is and how this sin and rebellion of his people will not thwart what he has set out to do. The message of the prophets is not just repent and return to God's law, which it most certainly is, but it's that God is preparing the way for something new, which he has been planning from the beginning. And what will be important for us to note is God's gracious action both in history and in speaking through the prophets to capture the hearts of his people, to focus their attention in the midst of incredible, uh, incredibly difficult circumstances in the exile and the sufferings therein. The question that we will have then to wrestle with when it comes to the application of these messages is, will Will and how do we as his church need to heed and adhere to these same words on the other side of the cross? You see, the prophets give us a definitive and unvarnished look at what God is doing and has been doing throughout salvation history. So when we read the prophets, it's like slowly opening a gift. Right, So each, as we slowly open each fold in the wrapping, it's revealing more and more of what is to come. It's revealing more and more of what that gift is that has been planned providentially from the beginning. So while also giving us an even greater and more glorious view of our Creator. And so my prayer is that this morning, we as His church at Southside will be motivated to live a life of worship in submission to God's grace displayed in the cross of Christ. That we will be so overwhelmingly moved at the grace of God and the cross of Christ that we will realize that we are called as his church not to live in response to that by doing the best we can, by uh, mounting up an amount of good works or in any 
shape of our imagination doing something that we think is going to continue our salvation, enhance our salvation, or anything like that, but that we will simply live in response to the grace of God and the cross of Christ, a life lived in worship and submission to him. So I'll encourage you, church, to go ahead and stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word as we read from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 will be our text for this morning. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word and read these harsh words of your judgment against sin and the situation in which your people found themselves in in this point in history. Let us see your redemptive purpose in these actions and in these words. And then as your church, let us live in such a way as not to attempt to in any way to offer up modern uh, blood of bulls or goats or, or any amount of works or obligatory uh, obedience. But God, let us offer up to you a continued life lived in worship of all that you have accomplished for us in our salvation. Let us live a response, a life of response to the glory of your name that we may make your name known among the nations. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, church. So again, we see Isaiah himself gives us a great amount of historical context 
to the time in which he is speaking, the, the specific nation to which he is speaking is the nation of Israel has been split in half. So we have the southern tribe of Judah and the northern tribe of Israel. And the southern tribe of Judah contains with it the city of Jerusalem. And so as we come onto the scene there in verse 1, we see he gives us the name of his father, who we don't know much about. But uh, in Isaiah himself, throughout the rest of his letter, doesn't give us much much personal information, but again, the more important thing is, and I think the focus of that is, that God is at the center of this message. And then the focus of that is, how do we then as his people respond to how God is at work in every facet of our lives? And so he says, this is the vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So now we're coming off of a time which we've read 2 Kings and we've read 2 Chronicles. And so we, we're having a, a greater picture, a grasp of exactly the, the breadth and the time span in which Isaiah prophesied and ministered is immense, especially when compared to some of the other prophets. And so we have a tremendous span in time over the period of secession of kings who honored the Lord, of who dishonored the Lord, and a time in which Isaiah is trying to send out this message which God has given him to deliver to the people. So spanning the reign of four kings, Isaiah prophesied to both, uh, to just the, the, the southern tribe of Judah, specifically to the city of Jerusalem. And the message was what? Salvation is found in Yahweh alone. And in fact, that's exactly what his name literally means. That salvation is in Yahweh. And he's sending the true, uh, and the, the idea here as we move and as the message develops throughout the book of Isaiah is that Yahweh is sending the true heir to David's throne. And that this is his working and this is what his people need to be looking forward to. And that in this, he's doing something different. And again, we got that message pretty clear as we read our text for today. The, the blood of bulls and goats is no longer going to be satisfactory. So something is moving here. This is, a, again, a pivotal point, not just in the life of the people of God, but in the life of salvation history as a whole. As, so as Isaiah's message unfolds, it shines light on a couple of key themes. One, that God's grace for sinners, even Gentiles, is coming. That there is a tremendous abundance of grace which God is showing in this moment. And we're going to get to more of that in a little bit. But as the message unfolds, it unfolds that it's not just for those who are currently the covenant people of God, but His grace is coming to the Gentiles as well. And so the second key theme in Isaiah's message is this, that Israel must be rid of those members who destroy the mission of God's people with their rebellious lives. And so he's doing something clearly radical in the life of his people here that is going to shape and is making way for what he is doing for his covenant people as a whole, which we now come to know as his church. So pick back up in verse 2. 
in which we begin the message itself. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So, in this, Isaiah's message begins with a call to creation, all creation, to hear God's case against his own people. So you can see when you're reading the prophets, it's, it's essential that you follow the punctuation here because it can, it can kind of become confusing sometimes reading the prophets because we move from the prophet's words to God's words to the prophet's words. And so if you're not paying careful attention to the quotation marks and the announcements and the different pronouncements and things like that, you can kind of like, okay, who's speaking here, right? And so you begin here in verse two, Isaiah is the one who says, hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. So this message that he wants the people of Israel to hear for sure, but he's saying this message is for all to understand and know. So heavens, listen up. All earth, give ear, for the Lord has spoken. So he's saying, I've brought up. So then we enter into the quotation there of God's words. This is God's declaration. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. So I've brought them up. So this is calling into uh, account the history that we have read up until this point of the people, of the chronological consistent showing of faithfulness and goodness and graciousness to his people to give the promise to Abraham and then to, to... provide Moses to draw the people out of slavery and then to provide his law to the people that they may know him better and walk closer with him. So that's not just merely like I've raised them up, but in saying I reared them and brought them up is calling into remembrance all that the Lord has done to this point to make them a people, to make them a nation for himself. And he's saying, I've reared them up and brought them up but they have rebelled against me. So again, we're seeing this this continued theme. It's just reminding us and reaffirming to us all that we've seen to this point is that God has graciously shown himself faithful and the people have continuously shown themselves unfaithful. But God has continued time and again to show himself. I've brought these children up. I've nourished them. I've protected them. I've blessed them. But they have rebelled against me. They've made a mockery of my grace. And so he he uses this analogy here, God does, in verse 3, that an ox knows its owner. So even an ox knows who his owner is and obeys and appreciates the loving care that the owner shows to, to feed him and nurture him. A donkey knows exactly where, who, uh, where its master has made for him to sleep. And he goes there and he, he finds care and shelter where his master has set up for him. But my own people do not know or understand who they belong to. So these are simple animals, right, that the Lord uses as this analogy. Donkey and ox. And he's saying even these simple creatures know So your oxes and your donkeys know where you've set up for them, how you care for them. You yourself don't even know that you are my people. 
And you know, church, this brings us to our first point this morning, which you'll find on your outline, that God's law is plain, but sin is mindless. See, sin and rebellion against God's laws and ways is like brain candy, right? You'll often hear this referred to as, as the scroll, right? It's just, it's meaningless, it's pointless, but you'll just find yourself just scrolling through the monotony that we will find on our phones. Why? Just because it's easy. It's what we default to. Like rather than sitting there, have to sit there in silent thought or commit thought to something, the task that we need to do at hand, our brains are, have been rewired to just default to what is easy so that I can just be constantly entertained but never consuming anything of value. See, sin is like that. It's, we can mindlessly find ourselves in the monotony of sin. It tastes good, it's quick, it feels natural, but it has zero nutritional value. That's what I mean by it's, it's brain candy, right? Over and over again, throughout the storyline of Scripture, we see the repeated theme that God's word is not too lofty for us to understand. It is not too far beyond us to comprehend. It is not so high that we have to send someone to come get it for us. It's not too low that we can say who will go to Sheol to retrieve it for us, but that he has placed it on our minds, on our hearts, and in our mouths. But we as humans would rather take the mindless path of sin than the plain and well-lit path of truth. We read this in Romans chapter 2. This is Paul's plea as he's communicating to the church at Rome that this is the, the state of the human heart. This is the, the human condition. Romans chapter 2, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not know or have the law. So what Paul is saying there is like even the Gentiles display in their actions that they know God's law. The very fact that we can look at something and people in the secular world can look at something and say, that's not right. That we have a sense of judgment, of morality, is proof of itself that God's law is written on our hearts. Because then if you come back to that, and even the secular person, and you ask the secular person, not right by what standard? The only thing that they can fall back to is the standard which man has set, the judicial system. Or, okay, well, but what says that is Right? And that's where we find a culture that is consistently changing what right is because it's at the whims of the human heart. And so that's what Paul is communicating there in Romans chapter 2 is that the Gentiles display that the law of God is written on their hearts. And it continues in verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Church, don't allow yourself to mindlessly wander off into a cycle of rebellion. Mindlessness will leave you in a mindless place of misery. The mindless path will have you living in fear instead of confidence in the goodness of God and his plan. 
The mindless path will have you thinking your way is the only way instead of trusting those who God has graciously given to lovingly hold you accountable. Don't follow what is mindless. Follow what is plainly made clear by God's word. So as the law of God is written on our hearts, we are all accountable to the law, but we don't understand what that means unless we know it through the means which God has given for us to know it, and that's his word. And that's what we see. We continue reading in verse 4. So again, we're paying attention to the punctuation here. So the quotation marks have ended. God has, uh, Isaiah has communicated what the Lord has spoken. And now we're about to essentially get Isaiah's exegesis of God's words, right? Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So he doesn't hold anything back in his message. He doesn't kind of softly work them into like uh, an understanding of what God has said. He goes straight to the point. This verse promptly depicts the heart of Isaiah for his own people as the people of God. And the key to seeing this lies in one word. And it's that first two-letter word there at the beginning of verse 4. Ah. So this is not just a throwaway cry of frustration. But rather, this is a cry of indignation. Upon hearing and delivering this message from God, Isaiah reciprocates the heartbreak of God for the sinfulness of his children. This is where I want us to see that God is righteously indignant against sin. This is a repeated theme throughout the prophets. That God is righteously indignant against sin. These two things we must understand in order for us to know where we stand with God. That God is righteously indignant against sin. And we have all mindlessly estranged ourselves from God. That's how Isaiah describes the position of his own people. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. So he's saying this goes back far. That it's not just you, but you are, off, you are offspring of evildoers. You are children who deal corruptly. Forsaken the Lord, despise the Holy One of Israel. And what has this, where has this left God's people? Where does it leave all who would make themselves sinful, sinful and follow the mindless path of sin? They are utterly estranged, completely removed. We read this in Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is what Isaiah is saying here. You've estranged yourself. You've removed yourself from God. And Paul continues in Ephesians 2, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. So this is our nature, that we are born estranged from God. And 
Isaiah's message to the people of God is that God chose you. He nurtured you like an ox or a donkey, but you don't even know anymore. Why? Because you are children. You are offspring of evildoers. And that this rebellion goes back far. And so you've been born now utterly estranged. Now, when you read that word there, that de- these declarations, don't, don't just pass off this, this idea of sinful nation, nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring, children. These are all words which are meant to elicit and call back to God's working in the people from Genesis chapter 17 when he issues the promise to Abraham. The Lord's choosing of Israel all the way back to Abraham was that they were to be a righteous nation. We read this in Genesis 18. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. This is God speaking to the angels just before they go to strike down Sodom and Gomorrah, which Isaiah also references here in just a little bit. So there's a clear connection there. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So this was it. They were to be a righteous nation. And now they're described as what? Sinful nation. Then we go even further. You go to Exodus in the call of Moses, or just prior to that. Exodus chapter 2, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And he goes to Moses and he tells him that he wants to rescue He wants him to go and rescue his people. So they were to be a righteous nation, God's people. And now they're a sinful nation and not God's people, but a people laden with iniquity who have estranged themselves. Exodus chapter 3, when uh, the Lord is talking to Moses, he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And now they're children who deal corruptly. Offspring of evildoers. So these aren't just titles or terms which Isaiah is using interchangeably for no reason, but he's wanting them to remember all that God has accomplished to bring them to this point and now what they have done by following their ways and their desires. And this continues as you pick as we pick back up in verse 5 why will you still be struck down these are rhetorical questions that you're going to continue to be struck down you've seen judgment against your sin so why would you continue to be struck down why will you continue to rebel and then Isaiah answers why the whole head is sick And the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. So he's unequivocal in his addressing the issue of just how pervasive the sinfulness of the people is. From head to toe, toe to head, heart and in the heart and the head, both completely sick. And there we also have references to healing. 
bruises and sores and raw wounds, Isaiah says, they are not pressed or bound up or softened with oil. So they've not even been treated, these wounds of sinfulness, which the people are bearing. So they are willingly walking about having these open, festering wounds of sin. So there's no healing going on. There's no, there's no reacting to their own sinfulness. These things have not been addressed. They are festering wounds which are killing the people. And this is exactly what Isaiah wants the people to hear in God's address. This is, again, Isaiah's exegesis of God's word to the people. And I'm convicted of this truth, which is the next point in your outline. We must confront sin with truth and love. That's what Isaiah is doing here. Because here's the thing, the mistake that far too many people make is they forsake truth in the name of love. The problem is, if it's not rooted in truth, it cannot be truly loving. And I'll borrow an analogy I've heard many times before. I don't remember the originator of it or I would give credit, but just know it's, it's not original to me. But it's as if our loved ones, the people around us, the people in our community, we are watching them walking along a train track with uh, uh, noise-canceling headphones on. And we're a ways back, so we have a different perspective, and they're just simply walking along the track. And then we see and we can hear and we know that a train is coming because someone's already taken us off the track. And that train is barreling down the tracks and they have no idea. And so the loving thing to do is to say, you keep going, you keep walking your own path, you keep doing your own thing, right? The Lord is accepting of that. The Lord, he knows your heart. Or is the loving thing to do to wave our arms and yell at the top of our lungs to try to get their attention and do whatever we can to say, you're about to die. To say the path you are following, you need to get off of it quickly. And this is the gospel. This is to say that sin leads to death. And what God has called sin, we must avoid. And Isaiah is telling the people, your raw wounds are open. And he continues this analogy. He continues this uh, um, just truthful and honest and real uh, breakdown of the situation that the people find themselves in. Pick back up in verse 7. Your country, it lies desolate. So like, have you no pride? Like, look at where you've brought yourself because of your own sin. Your cities are burned with fire. Why? Because we've read in Kings and Chronicles that the Lord was rounding up the surrounding nations to come in judgment against his people. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It's desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Standing alone, desolate, nothing. And then we get verse 9. In verse 9, we begin to see Isaiah wanting the people to understand 
God's grace in this. Because you might be saying to yourself like, okay, where's the hope at some point, right, in what Isaiah said? Well, here, here's where we start to see. And he begins to shine the light of what God is doing here. Verse 9, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And here is where we begin to see this theme, which develops throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah, that the fact that the people are even able to hear this message of judgment against sin is itself an act of God's grace. So consider this overwhelming truth that God here and throughout his word speaks that his people may know him and respond accordingly. He has spoken. And so even in his message of judgment against sin, God is showing grace that he would say anything, that he would alert them to their sinfulness is itself grace. God speaks and acts that his people may know him and respond accordingly. The overwhelming grace of God to reveal himself and reveal our sin. This is where we need to know this. And this is what Isaiah wants the people to understand here, and we need to understand it continuously. Let us never forget it. The next point on your outline, salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the one who saves. God's action and God's action alone is what has preserved his people to even stand before his judgment in this moment. So church, let us never grow tired or shrink from this truth that salvation belongs to the Lord. Were it not for the providential working of God in Christ, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And that is the message of Isaiah here. If the Lord of hosts had not left us just a few survivors, a remnant that would know him and eagerly look forward to his coming Messiah, the coming heir from the throne of David, we should have been utterly destroyed like Sodom and become just like Gomorrah because we deserve the same fate is what Isaiah wants the people to know. And that is what we need to know as well. That were it not for the Lord's gracious, loving kindness shown us in the cross of Christ, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. God has spoken. God has acted. Respond, repent, and be saved. And here's the challenge. Because if you've already responded, you might think to yourself, then, then what, how do I you know, respond to that? How do I act? How, what's the application of that? Because I know this. I know that salvation belongs to the Lord. And here's that, here's that challenge. Never cease to throw yourself at the grace and the mercy of the one who spoke into your heart to draw you to himself. Because it become all too easy for us to think that we have some active ongoing role to play in our salvation. And Isaiah speaks to this tendency because this is what the people of Israel began to look. Hear, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. So who's he calling the rulers of Sodom? God's people. So they're like, he, he wants to be unequivocal here. Like, you don't get to stand off and say that you're not like this. You are just like the rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, 
you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? So here we have the quotation marks again, right? So that was Isaiah's message. And now the Lord speaking here again. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. God does not desire obligatory repetitious acts, but rather a heart that has been pierced by the truth, by the spirit of truth through the word. That's the Next point there on your outline. The message here is that I've had enough of broken, sinful hearts who are continuously, unrepentantly rebellious coming into my sanctuary and presenting a bull or a goat and thinking that they're good. Like that's it. I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams. You see, God's word pierces through the darkness, shines light on the path, revealing sin and signaling the way to salvation. So salvation belongs to the Lord. And he graciously shines light on the path that we might know his salvation. So listen, church, if we think we are getting somewhere with God by simply putting our rear in a seat once or twice a week, We're sorely mistaken. That same line of thinking runs parallel to offering up a meaningless bull or goat and then going about our life in a completely different way. Sunday to Wednesday, Wednesday to Sunday. Because it's easy to acknowledge the faithfulness and the goodness and the sovereignty of God when we're sitting here and surrounded by our brothers and sisters and we're all proclaiming that same truth. It is increasingly harder when we go outside of here and the darkness of the world attempts to draw us to the mindlessness of sin. And we're tempted to fear the world rather than rest assured in the sovereignty of the Lord. So the spirit pierces through the word. And we see Jesus communicates this in the book of John, a couple of different times, multiple times throughout the book of John, he's referring to the spirit of truth, right? And that's why I want to kind of reaffirm what I mean there by that point. So John 16, verse 13, we read this. He says in the verse prior, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So he's speaking to his disciples. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So he's saying the Spirit is speaking the same truth that has been spoken, that I am now here as uh, the Word made flesh speaking to you. He goes on to say this in John 17. Speak, and this is Jesus praying on our behalf to God the Father, on the behalf of his disciples. He says this in John 17. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
So, we go on here in, back in Isaiah. And it becomes clear and continued the message of the Lord. So we had Isaiah's um, breakdown of God's word there. And we pick back up in verse 12. And we see this continued unfolding of God's disdain for how his people have treated his law and have abused his grace. When you come to appear before me, verse 12, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. That's the Lord's declaration. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. So he's saying like, this is the entire system of your worship, I'm done with it. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in pious, self-righteous worship, verse 15, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And so here's, here's the deal. Because here's, here's the hope in this message and here's what will continue to be revealed as we go throughout the book of Isaiah. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Like as the priests would go into the temple, right? They'd have to ritually cleanse themselves. Remove the, the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. So something's got to change, what God says. So try to do it yourself. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And now here's where God says, let's, let's be honest with one another, right? Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. So let's, let's come to an understanding of where you're at and what has to happen. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The reality is we are all worshiping something or someone. So you can spend your life offering up vain sacrifices on the altar of yourself, on the altar of your job, culture, any numerous vain attempts that this world is full of. You can even waste time making vain offerings of self-righteous acts. Obligatory penitence of attendance, tithes, so on. Or we can all submit to the work of Christ on the cross and be washed as white as snow. And that's the overall and continued developing message of Isaiah. Is that one is coming. Unto us a son is born as we go on to see in chapter 9. In Ephesians 2, we read this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Realize that doing things your way has gotten you to this place. And though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And God's plan, his providential plan for doing this, for accomplishing this work, because this is courtroom language that God is using here. Like, let us reason together, let you realize where you're at in this judgment scene. And the the reality is you can't do it. You can't make yourself clean. You can't remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. So God has made possible a way for all those who are wandering in mindless sin. The problem is all humanity will continually choose the mindlessness of sin over the well-lit path of truth of God's word. Were it not for him drawing us to himself and washing us white by the work of Christ on the cross. And so here's the challenge. Either submit or continue the path that we see warning, that Isaiah is warning the people of. So either we submit to the work of Christ on the cross or we continue to mindlessly try to do any number of works and acts, or we continue to worship ourselves. But it's only through submitting to the work of Christ on the cross, and our response to that then is to live a life of worship and praise and glorifying the one who has made that possible. Let's pray. God, we love you. Pray, God, now as we consider these truths. I pray for a couple of different things in considering these truths, God. That those who are lost in sin would realize their eyes would be opened by the truth of your word to the mindlessness of sin and the goodness of your grace and that you would move them to salvation. Draw them to yourself. Now I pray that they would respond accordingly in our time of response here in just a few seconds. Lord, for those of us who are in you, who know the goodness that you have shown in the cross of Christ, I pray that you would humble us continuously at your grace and that you would move us to never be distracted by the mindlessness of sin, to continually be fighting the battle by your strength to stay on the well-lit path of truth, to submit to the grace shown us in the cross and to live a life of worship in response to it. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.